This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Gaslit Magic and Immortal Monster Hunters, incorporating strong historical elements in urban fantasy. And this week, we are delighted to welcome C.N. Rowan to the show. Hello, Chris. Hey, how you doing? Chris is the author of the Imperfect Cathar series, which has been rapidly released since May. I think we're on, we're just coming up to book three now. And we've actually already mentioned his first book a couple of times on the show previously. And mm-hmm. considering the subject matter, it kind of makes him the perfect person to join today's discussion. So, um, yeah. I sort of sent a begging email. <laughs> it was very kind, very kindly replied. I then sent a begging reply, begging to be allowed on. So that worked perfect. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, actually, uh, Chris is joining us from France today. So, and I'm mentioning this because I would like our listeners to appreciate the fact that there was <laughs> a small moment there where just Chris and I were ready to do this entire thing in French. Um, C'était vraiment prêt. We've decided we're going to uh, to do it in English um, because we feel that perhaps there might be a few complaints if we didn't. Um, Truly generous. So, <laughs> yes. so Chris, it is wonderful um, to have you on the show with us. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, certainly. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. It is fabulous to be here on Dissecting Dragons. Uh, I am C.N. Rowan. I write under that name, which is spectacularly unoriginal because it's actually my name. Uh, I am, <laughs> I, I'm a writer of urban fantasy. It's always a funny one, isn't it? All these labels now and the different subgenres of subgenres yeah. of subgenres. Um, but it, it's no romance. Um, darkly funny uh historical elements woven in including uh french history french mythology strange and weird beasts you won't have encountered um with it divided between modern times with the majority set in the modern era in the south of france uh with flashbacks to events over the past 800 years that our main protagonist excuse me our main protagonist has been alive and in effect, it follows a trio of immortal heretics um, and their misadventures through the Occitan. Before you get any further, when Chris says darkly funny, he really does mean darkly funny. Um, I'm going to just paint a little word picture of you here without getting <laughs> spoilers. Um, but basically, I like to do a small chunk of the Cotswold Way in the morning before work. It keeps me fit. It you know keeps my mind nice and agile. And it was the most beautiful morning it was early the river was babbling along there was bird song there were pools of sunlight coming through like liquid gold the leaves were just rustling in a gentle breeze you could hear the wrens and the robins and the blackbirds there were little gray wagtails and yellow wagtails which are you know quite rare and there was a bird of prey hovering on the horizon it was so peaceful and then into all this peace comes me stumbling and snorting like a donkey on meth because I'm listening to Chris's audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I actually, at one point, I made an, I don't know what noise it was, but it obviously wasn't good because several sheep sort of bleated in alarm and darted away from the fence. 
So uh, I feel like yeah. I should use that on, on the promotional material. You know, <laughs> so, so, so good it scares the sheep. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it will make people wonder, won't it? <laughs> yeah, it will. I mean. Will. I had a, a similar sort of experience um, in that when I was listening um, to your sort of the, the prequel, um, I was wheezing because I was laughing, <laughs> but I was trying not to make too much noise, so I was just wheezing, and it's just uh, it's just someone sticks their head around the corner, is like, "Do you need your inhaler? Are you okay?" <laughs> I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> Another one for the advertising. So so funny, it will make you die of asthma. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so funny, it will trigger your asthma. Yeah. Um, so, um, so obviously you mentioned um, the Cathars. Um, why? Why that the Cathars? very accusatory. Yeah. Why? Why, why? Cathar, um, uh, You know this whole religious element. What? Ha- what sort of triggered you to sort of decide to use that and to write about that? Well, I mean, I, I live in Qatar country. You know, the Qatars mm-hmm. are eminently um, present wherever you go. Um, mm-hmm. It's become a huge, huge marketing thing uh, for for the whole of this kind of area of the south of France. You know, thanks to what was originally really kicked back off with the, the book The Blood and the Grail, uh, and then obviously later on with the Da Vinci Code and all these sort of mm-hmm. things. So that, 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 that's really got people interested again in these strange... Uh, myths and and magics of, of of this part of the world and the Pyrenees, um, but uh, the book that really inspired it of me was bought to, for me by my brother, um, and it's a book called The Perfect Heresy um, by Stephen O'Shea. And mm-hmm. if you are interested in the story of the Cathars or one aspect, because there is all sorts of of, of um, scholarly debate going on at the moment as to whether the Cathars even really existed, which is a mm-hmm. fascinating subject, but perhaps another one for another time. Um, but but for the story or the side of the history that I'm going for, I can highly recommend it. It's a, it's a really well-written story that brings in all sorts of elements of the stuff that was going on there at the time. And it's just such a strange and almost unbelievable period of history. Mm-hmm. That I thought this, this is great. And as I was reading it, and I was reading about the beliefs of the Cathars, um, and I was reading about all these things that they that they that they believed in, you know, like vegetarianism, the equality of women, dualism. So they believed in a good god and a bad god, and that the, the bad god created the world, and that the good god lived exterior to it. And if you like, we were stuck on this equivalent of the wheel of Dharma until the point where we reached perfection which is what they called their priest, the perfects, um, who then might escape from this sort of, this, this endless reincarnation. I thought to myself, well, what about if you had a Cathar who reincarnated, who kept reincarnating, who had kept reincarnating and therefore existed now in the modern world? But if he did, well, he couldn't be perfect, could he? Because if he was perfect, he'd have escaped the cycle. So he'd have to be yeah. imperfect. But what if he'd been a perfect and somehow fell from that role of priest and and that was really the, the kickoff point for the whole idea of the series. Yeah, it's, it's such really, a cool idea. <laughs> it is. It's really, really interesting. And um, the whole, I mean, I know a little bit about the Cathars, but um, it's kind of, uh, it's quite adjacent to Buddhism and also sort of the early Christian mysticism with um, Gnosticism. Well, mm. they, they, they obviously, there they, they were people who draw it back. I mean, actually, the Cathar, the label we put on them, 
is very much a more modern label that was placed on them around, he says, the 15th century. And it actually comes from Qatari, which means the pure ones. Yeah. And the Qatari were a Gnostic movement in the in the first century. Um, and um, it was one of the popes. I can't remember which one. I think one of the innocents, but I can't remember, um, who, who, who had a real obsession with this particular brand of heresy. And he talked about the Qatari uh, as this huge risk to 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 uh, to Christianity, uh, and then it became almost a label that got applied to all the heretics. That's what the historians will tell you. And then there is also all of the modern Gnostics. Uh, you know, the, the French Gnostic Church um, very much draws a line all the way back to the Cathars. Um, they believe that the Cathars were a continuation of these Gnostic groups right back to the first century. You know, and then you get into stuff like the belief that. Mary Magdalene and Lazarus came to France and that they brought the Holy Grail with them, which, you know, some pretty big and serious people have believed in, you know, including Himmler, who built a, a whole extra room on his chateau, on his chateau for the SS, because he was convinced his man, Otto Rahn, was going to bring him the physical Grail from Montsegur. So, you know, it, it, people have taken this very, very seriously, you know, some pretty, pretty nasty but pretty you know, <laughs> famous people have taken this very very seriously um, although the modern version of, of the uh, of the um, Gnostic movement dates back actually really to the very um, the very end of the 19th century uh, there was a fella who was actually he was a librarian um, in Orléans and he uh, he was a spiritualist and he um, started doing um, seances um, particularly there was a countess who funded it all and they um, channeled what they believed. They channeled all of the um, the Cathars, uh, including Esclamond herself, uh, the sister of Raymond of Foix, who's become quite legendary within the Gnostic movement. Um, and they channeled the, or believed themselves to have channeled the 300 Cathars who were executed at Montsegur, uh, wrote down all of their names, and then also <laughs> some of the um, of the um, the acts, if you will of the Cathars, the versions of the Consolamentum, which was the ritual they used to become perfect. And those are what are now used as the basis of, of what, if you like, they call modern Catharism. And that all ties back to these kind of seances at the end of the 19th century. That must have been a very crowded room. Right, all 300 of you, get into a line, <laughs> anybody, introduce yourselves here? one yes! by one. <laughs> and now I'm thinking of Rent-A-Ghost, which might be too young to remember, probably. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, it's quite an unusual take on, on sort of urban fantasy because it really does have a lot of strong historical emphasis in terms of your series. Um, you know, because usually you think urban fantasy is like, right, it's very modern. It's like, it's very modern, but actually it's also almost historical fantasy at the same time. And, and you've sort of melded those two together. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, if you like, yeah, you're right in that the part in the modern times is very, very, very modern. Uh, mm. You know, obviously it's all, it's pop culture references and, you know, it is the, the modern world. Um, but the parts in the past are, you know, they are historical fantasy in a way. Um, and someone probably should have told me not to do that because don't mix genres is the one thing you learn later on as an author. But it's, I somehow seem to have got away with it. Um, and... Yeah, I guess it goes with my stuff as a style, stylistically as a whole, doesn't it? You know, 
it's darkly funny, but it's also something of a kind of emotional roller coaster and a gut punch and, you know, and twisty turny mysteries. And I seem to, you know, everything apart from romance all thrown in together. And, and somehow, I, yeah, as I say, I managed to get away with it. God knows how. Yeah, you, you literally just went, I'm going to do it all. Except for romance. <laughs> Screw you, yeah, romance. Exactly. I was like, you know, because, like, <laughs> you know, I, like, I am obviously, first and foremost, a fan of urban fantasy. And it has been my escapism for, for a very long time, you know. And in fact, to the point, I, you know, I, I did an album in, in 2000. Well, I did it in 2020, released it in 2021. And I actually did a track um, that was basically a, 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 um, a tribute to urban fantasy called Kate Griffin. Um, after <laughs> author Claire North, as she now more famously writes, but who wrote her urban fantasy as Kate Griffin, um, and uh, you know, so so I, I you know, it's very much my genre. But I did get to that kind of point. Where I was like, God, oh, really could do without all of the kind of like, oh, he's such a bad boy. Oh, staring his eyes. <laughs> oh. You, yeah, I want same. him, but I must not. <laughs> I want him, but I must not. And again, you know, not taken, not taken away from that because there is some great authors out there, and I love a lot of it. But I was like, I just, I loved it when I came across the odd book that wasn't romance orientated, and I was like, that's mm-hmm. what I want to write because it's what I really love to read. So I did. Fantastic. Yeah. And and there's the you know there's something else there because it's not just that you have written these books, you are also narrating them in the audiobooks. That is correct for my sins. I am. So, so how? Do, oh. What made you? Um, what made you decide to go in that direction? Well, that sounds I like mean, a really loaded question. Because <laughs> <laughs> why it's, on it's, earth it's, did it's you do this? Why did you unleash this misery <laughs> upon us? Um, it's a couple of well, it's a load of reasons, as is often the case, and often these aren't reasons you realise um, initially, but 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 add on and realise perhaps were lurking there subconsciously as you continue first one is obviously i had a home studio which which put me at an advantage over over a majority of authors and experience um operating as a sound engineer and recording so i thought well you know it, it already gave me a step up uh, secondly i worked as an actor very briefly um when i was a kid uh, it's what i always wanted to do as a kid it's what i always wanted to be growing up i wanted to be an actor i wasn't that good so when i kind of I, I, I um, when I hit my my post A levels age, I worked for a school's theatre company for a year, um, and I applied for a few different acting degrees. Was politely told. In fact, I, I did the Rose Bruford auditions, and they basically said we'd love you to do the European theatre arts. They said if we if you stay in 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 theatre, uh, we think you'll go into directing. That's where your sort of your strengths lie. Which was a very polite way of saying you're not very good, mate. Don't don't bother. You know. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, I kind of I got to the end of that, and then sort of by the point where I needed to sort of start making decisions, my music had become much more my passion, and I was like, no, I just I'm, I'm done on this for now. But it's kind of it's lovely to have gone back, if you like, and 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 satisfied a childhood dream. Here I am, you know, X number of decades after, and and making that happen. So that was lovely. Um, I'm very much I'm all about. I just got my first anti-woke review yesterday, which was brilliant. Someone saying uh, my book was boring and full of woke tropes. Which I was like, well, that, that counts as a victory in my book. So I was like, wonderful. Um, <laughs> level up. But, you know, a level up. Yeah, that was it. I was, that was my badge of honour. But I, I, I was like, um, you know, I, I, you know, I like things like inclusivity. I'm actually all about that. And there are all sorts of people who, you know, prefer to listen to audiobooks. 
who are unable to get along with a story unless they do get the audiobooks, you know, and mm. and being able to bring everyone along for the ride, you know, probably, you know, gripping onto the handle and screaming possibly, <laughs> but, but nonetheless along for the ride uh, seemed like a fabulous thing. So that's the other reason. And the last reason, and one that's really important to me actually, is I do have a couple of young kids and I love reading to them. I really do. And, you know, I've read to them, you know, since they were born. In fact, I read to them, you know, when, when my oldest, Ilias, was, was I, I got um, Philip Pullman's um, version of The Grim Fairy Tales and I read to him while he was in my wife's, I say stomach, but he wasn't in her stomach. That would be <laughs> weird. Yeah, that, that's a very different, <laughs> that's another dark twist there. Yeah, uh, anatomically massively incorrect. But while, while my, you know, while he was not born out into the world, uh, I, I was reading to him then. And, um, you know, I, I've always loved doing that. And as sad and tragic a thought as it is, there is going to come a point at some age, whatever that is, where they don't want me to read to them anymore. And I kind of like the thought, you know, that that might possibly be the point where going and listening to my uber sweary, dark and violently funny series, you know, <laughs> might, might be that moment. And so, yeah. in a way, I'll still be able to read them a story, which I quite like, you know? That's, yeah. that's very nice, yeah. Yeah, and um, the reason, I, obviously, I was interested in asking you your experience about making audiobooks is I've been saying for ages I'm going to do mine um, and I've come to the conclusion that the reason I'm holding back is I'm waiting for someone in the universe to give me permission. Obviously, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not asking you for this, but I Jules think... Jules Ironside, <laughs> you are granted the right to perform your own audiobook. Thank Benedict you. Benedictine... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the Cathars have just joined us again. <laughs> Is there anyone in the room with us? Yes, lots of us! <laughs> 300 of them. Um. But yeah, I think that that's the thing is I've seen, I mean, I've been on a few, I've sort of lurked on a few forums um, with, you know, uh, professional audiobook narrators and things. And a lot of them are really, really great. And some of them are very inclusive and open. And it's like, you give it a go, but be aware that there is an awful lot of work involved in order to get it up to a sort of professional level. And others are absolutely no, only people with proper training, basically proper classical type training should be doing it at all. And they're really keen on shutting people out. Um, and I, I can kind of understand it because this is their profession and it, it's their livelihood. But when you're, you're in a situation where it's like, I'd like there to be audiobooks, I actually can't afford to pay one of you guys to do it because I can't pay what you're worth. I go, I don't want to just like do do some sort of Amazon type plan where you might get paid eventually at some point over the next seven years because that doesn't seem fair to me. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a case of, yeah, do it myself, which I don't mind the hard work. Um, but yeah, so there's all those sort of considerations. But it, I think the other thing is there is part of me that thinks that I... Not that I will perform it better than a professional, but just because I know what it sounds like in my head. Yeah. Yes, and that's what I'm trying yes. to communicate. <laughs> yeah, I think there's I'd a lot I'd also like that. to point out... Sorry, I was just going to say, I'd also like to point out that you, are, you handily include a lot of dead languages, Jules, and I feel like a fair few narrators would just sort of look at the... <laughs> 
okay, the yeah, ancient fair. Welsh and just be like, why? Why have you done why, this? Why high Welsh and sin great elk and Latin? Why? What are you doing? Yeah, that's fair. That is a fair Mind point. Mind you, I, I suddenly realised, I, I got to a point when I was narrating uh, Imperfect Faith and I'd completely forgotten I'd put in a section in Basque and I, I must <laughs> apologise to any of my Basque listeners because I was suddenly like, I have no idea if I am pronouncing any of this even <laughs> vaguely correctly. Uh, so, you know, whilst I did intend to say something, I may end up have insulting, you know, everyone in, in the Basque country's mother by accident or something with my terrible yeah. pronunciation. So sorry about that. <laughs> Insulted every mother and their cat. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, why don't we move on to the main topic before we um oh, we bef- get caught before, up in things? <laughs> before we do that, just just out of interest, because I also did a version of rapid releasing, and I only I just sort of did I did a season of books at a time, so I did five books to a season and rapid released them, and had a little break, and then just did the same thing. But how are you finding that? Is it a bit of a treadmill, or is it working oh. just fine? I mean, it's it's fine. It, it's working fine. The audiobooks are the thing that makes it much more tricky, if you like. Um, yeah. I expected to be further ahead than I am um, in terms of the editing process, which I'm not. So the editings are coming through, and I'm kind of, I've always just got time to do the audiobooks. And, and w- what it's meant is I'm not getting any time to write, which is a frustration. Um, and I wish I was. Um, but I've just had to accept, okay, you know, whilst I get my feet in this whole process, Perhaps I don't. And I'm just starting to make some time to write again. Outside of that, yeah, there are times when it is very, very tiring. And, and it's a lot, you know, between juggling, yeah, doing all the developmental edits and then getting it off for the proof reads and then getting the audiobook done whilst promoting the other one and staying on top of the art readers and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it does, you know, I, I, I can, okay, I, I've only got the stats at the moment for the first two books, but I can see it leveling up. Um, and... I think it's going to work. I think there's, a, you know, there's a reason for doing it, and I think it's going to pay off. So ask yeah. me again in, in in four books time or whatever it is, three books now. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So let's get on to the main topic. So we're going to start off um, by just sort of touching on some basic things but um as a lot of our listeners know because we've mentioned it in the past uh past urban fantasy readers tend to be uh what we would call whale readers um in fact just in general science fiction fantasy readers uh tend to be whale readers regardless uh which means that they get through dozens if not hundreds of books a year or in the case of jewels perhaps a thousand wow Um, (laughs) about 200 usually (laughs) it feels like a thousand um and basically there is there's got to be someone out there who is feeding this ferocious appetite um (laughs) otherwise otherwise these whale readers might just start snacking on reality um and unraveling the very fabric of the universe (laughs) Now, uh, as a result of this, this is all scientifically true. Now, as a result of this, uh, despite being uh, quite a crowded market, urban fantasy always seems to have room for a few more series. Mm. But, um, as Chris sort of actually mentioned earlier on, um, reader tastes will vary, and there are some 
very particular niches even within a single genre. So, um, for example, urban fantasy readers don't want, you know, there are some who don't want to touch urban fantasy unless there are vampires and werewolves in the series. Absolutely. Uh, Whilst there are others who are in the completely opposite direction and are super bored of the fanged and furry. Mm. Um, So, and, and even within that, there are niches, there are fairy niches, there are, you know, niches within different cultures, different countries, etc. Um, and the result is that the, you know, the subgenre of urban fantasy is actually fractured into sub-subgenres and sometimes sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-genres um, in a yellow sub, <laughs> many of which we don't even have names for yet. Um so it can be a bit sort of bewildering, bewildering yeah. <laughs> to find your way around as a reader, I think. I think yeah. so. You know, you can very easily stumble into perhaps depths that you weren't planning to go to, you know. <laughs> yes. Even yeah. with the submer- um, submersible theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and whales and everything else. And whales, yeah. <laughs> Got a bit nautical Yeah, we're really here. going there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they're starting to pull on the fabric of reality. Quick, <laughs> release Read another book. Books. Um, but not just for readers, actually. Um, you know, I think it can actually be very difficult for a writer as well to kind of figure out how to make your book stand out. Um, and one way that can do it, um, which obviously Chris has done, is to add strong historical themes or a setting which sounds like a contradiction in terms, and yet it can really work. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, definitely. Um, do, oh, do you, don't you just hate it when you have like the perfect thought and then it just vanishes out of your head into ether? It'll come back in a moment. <laughs> yeah. The, AKA just... my life. Yes, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> I know it's three o'clock in the morning when you're like, I'll remember <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Actually, it is always three o'clock in the morning. It's really weird. It's like the whole hour of the wolf thing. Something yeah. in my brain wakes up. Um, yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> there's two wolves inside of you, and awakens. one of them is an insomniac. <laughs> okay, I've I've really derailed that. So you know, well done me. Let's um, let's go let's go back a bit. Um, yeah, obviously we were talking about adding a strong historical setting or theme now. In, in some ways, what Chris has done is very, very clever and in in, in kind of a bit of a cheat, but we love, we love it, so it doesn't matter. Ah! And, that, and that is, you make your main character immortal, and then you have, in this instance, 800 years worth of, you know, well, basically pop culture references, if you want them, <laughs> and everything else, um, because it is very definitely urban fantasy. It reads like urban fantasy. It has the urban fantasy flavour. It hits the urban fantasy tropes, apart from romance. Um, mm-hmm. And it is just just a really, really clever way of doing it. And I don't, I honestly think of all that urban fantasy out there where you've got, it's usually the love interest, isn't it? Where you are a two hundred year old vampire or one thousand year old vampire or. 900 year old werewolf or whatever and they never really talk about their pasts or anything or have them you know flipping back and forth through time and you know making enemies 500 years ago and then dealing with them now part of that of course is that it's all you know it's a bit of a kind of i sound very dismissive and i don't mean it because i enjoy some of these books myself but there's a bit of it 
is the is the um oh what's the term i'm looking for uh the fantasy if you will of the reader in the terms of here is this young girl and here is this you know this 18 year old girl and this 900 year old vampire but nothing that has come before you has meant anything this is what really has made my 900 years of existence worthwhile you know and, <laughs> yeah. and they go and sparkle in the background but uh, you know so so <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose there's a bit of that isn't there so so there's there, there's that um it it's it, oh, no i don't I'm, it sounds very dismissive and i'm not dismissive i do like these books and i am a fan as well uh but you know it can be a a, a yes a, a fancy um realization on the part of the reader there has to be a snappier term for it than that but my brain has stopped working yeah. i mean I, I don't i like i i will enjoy a romantic subplot in urban fan i'm going off piece a bit here again but yeah um I'll enjoy it as a subplot if it's exploring character arc for the main character. So yes. perhaps it, it's showing them growing as a person. But when it, I think it loses me is when it starts to veer more towards the paranormal romance type thing because I, I don't really engage with that and find that as interesting. Uh, but that's personal preference, and uh, you know, in some ways, I feel bad that I don't write that because I could <laughs> make so much more money out of it, <laughs> you know, from a purely mercenary viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think I kind of you know, outside of the obvious kind of introductions of people like Neil Gaiman, um, which probably was my real gateway into urban fantasy. Um, but you know, and if you like, I, I think that's sort of what I aim to write is that stuff that's slightly that probably falls into the genre but but hasn't got that romantic element and is perhaps slightly off 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 kilter comparatively um but you know i remember coming across the anita blake books and i devoured them for a minute and then i was kind of like okay this is not really anything but do i wear porn now is it you know, i was gonna like, say did you get to book seven it's like this I, is just porn this is this, this is, is just, just porn endless now, sex yeah. scenes <laughs> yeah. and I, I and yeah it became a bit I'm honest. Sorry, she's probably made enough money that I can, you know, she'll 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 dry her eyes on some banknotes at the idea of me saying that, <laughs> you know. Um, oh no! Oh god, he didn't he didn't like it anymore. Oh no! I shall go and swim in my bank vault like Scrooge McDuck to make myself. Feel I was better. just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I, and if you like, that's exactly it. I'm the same. I, and yeah, when it bears off, there are some great books out there with, as you say. Um, a romantic subplot and some people who can hit those notes beautifully and I know you've had Heather G. Harris on the show for example before and you know romance is absolutely important in her books but it is a subplot and there is a fabulous fantastic story and a mystery mm -hmm. and a whodunit and everything in there and you know she is just fabulous at doing something really fresh and original and interesting but hitting all the tropes including the romance one so, so that, you know it's not to say that romance can't be done but once it starts veering off, yeah, into the into the um, into the slightly more pornographic, unless it's very very well written, and I'll tell you who does do it really well, uh, Mark Henwick. Do you know Mark Henwick? I don't actually. So Mark Henwick wrote a series called Bite Back that certainly kind of stumbles off into kind of reverse harem um, territory. <laughs> um, he's a British writer. But he also, he does, one of his characters is, oh God, I'm going to say Japanese. I think she's Japanese. And he wrote her origins and it is brilliant, brilliant historical urban fantasy. I mean, really, really. I mean, the guy obviously is a major buff and his world is really well done. And 
you know, he's a very intelligent and interesting writer. And, uh, you know, so even the sort of PNR elements of it means that it, I can still, I still really, really, really enjoy reading his series. So there are, as always, exceptions. But yeah, and perhaps because it brings in that slightly, you know, historical urban fantasy element as well. And exactly what you talked about, that people don't just forget about the hundreds of years previously. There is this sense mm-hmm. of a world and their history and people carrying their history with them that makes it really interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, otherwise uh, I'm with you. I've got to, I've got to congratulate there because you did manage to bring us back to the. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Really, that's my job. But you, you, did, nice you did a great job. There. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I I agree, and I think that potentially sort of one of the big things which sort of stands in the way of urban fantasy, um, including historical elements, uh, really lies in the fact that there are a lot of um, urban fantasy. Uh, writers and readers who will actually find historical fiction to be very inaccessible. Yeah. Um, Because it is too far. It's too distant. um, And and there is this kind of this idea that historical fiction is going to be very thick, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, It's kind of like historical fiction is almost like is science science fiction in that? It's, it, people tend to think of it as being sort of very difficult to get into, and unless you have a, sort of a background in that history, um, a background in that history, unless you lived in that time, no, <laughs> unless you are an eight hundred year old immortal, yeah. this book isn't for you. Just, just so, yeah, because every, everyone knows only immortals read historical fiction. <laughs> um, no, uh, but unless you, you know, unless you've kind of got an interest in that, it's going to be very inaccessible. But of course that's not actually always the case no. and if if it's an urban fantasy in total contrast has this kind of perception of being quite flighty quite quick um and so you almost think that these two things couldn't go together uh, which is why i think that a lot of people don't try and bring them together but mm. if you manage to bring that sense of pace i think to anything historical um, it can work very, very well as part of urban fantasy. I think the humour is also a thing. Um, I obviously I also write historical fiction, and my my bugbear with historical fiction is that people think they seem to write sometimes as if you know the people in the past didn't have a sense of humour, <laughs> and they they absolutely did. I mean, the number of chronicles and things that I read for you know my medieval history series, um, where. Okay, admittedly, it's pages and pages of toilet joke because the toilet joke was the was the absolute sort of height of humour back then. And some things never change. Let's and be some things never change. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't see why you can't incorporate humour into historical fiction. And I, you know, I've had yeah, some... which is it's strange because you know the humours. I mean, the history they were all about the humours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's God. Oh. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, come on. That was no, brilliant. No, lie down I, I, before I, I you hurt yourself. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I, I, must, yeah, I must confess, I have to confess, when I first attempted it, like my first draft of the stuff in the past was a bit po-faced. And it was all kind of, my, thine own is not acceptable, my liege. I mean, and yeah, it is very easy to stray off into this kind of ridiculous territory. And, yeah. uh, you know, my editor, quite rightly, clipped me around the back of the ear and said, Chris, what is this? Go and sort this out and, you know, and make it more realistic and more fun. 
I, I, and you know this is of course learning as we go as an author and I'm very glad I went and rewrote it but yeah it is it is simply another setting it would be like saying why why would you write urban fantasy in France because people don't know that location people don't know to leave well because you can then go and discover that location um, and similarly mm. the past in that sense is simply a place to visit people were still people yeah you know you're not going to reference back to the future or or, or or you know tiktok or whatever but outside of that the way people talk to each other is going to be very very similar you know with with different linguistic twists and all it is is another locale for people to go and discover a new backdrop if you will yeah absolutely yeah okay absolutely. let's look at some of the ways that you can add history to urban fantasy you know for for our listeners who are actually writers as well Ooh. yes um so you can you can have a typical urban fantasy setup whereby you are in the modern times with your magic system woven in but you can then add the historical flavor to the mystery so um either the series arc or the sort of the individual book arc um you know there's a little bit of the I'm not. I'm not going to say it. The Da Vinci Code, but I'm not going to say it. Um, in that you can. <laughs> <laughs> Boo, Da Vinci Code. Boo. <laughs> Boo. No, but isn't you can you can basically have them delving into the into the historical aspects as part of either sort of the mystery that they're unraveling, which forces them to look back into the past, um, or as part of their individual journey yeah i mean this works really well with a most sought after object type mystery as well as yeah. in particularly if you yeah, yeah. Was, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth it was like a, the saint MacGuffin. yeah i mean it's uh, um i wouldn't describe indiana jones obviously as um urban fantasy but the whole idea of looking for something this historical thing that's supposed to be a myth inverted commas and, and does actually have some sort of supernatural uh, stuff around it that never really gets explained or you can start with a main character who really doesn't know much about it who just either maybe they take custodianship of a package and it turns out to be this this thing which they don't know what to do with it can be anything really that's the whole MacGuffin thing I guess and it's just suddenly everything's coming for them trying to kill them <laughs> That can always be a great starting point. And I'm going to I'm going to correct you on that, Jules. I think I think you could argue that Indiana Jones absolutely is urban fantasy. And there you are, you know, you know, and set, if you will, certainly with the first films in a historical setting, i.e., the Second yeah. World War. So there you mm -hmm. are, you know, absolutely historical urban fantasy that rips along at a pace is snarky and funny and you know a a roller coaster adventure. Uh, so yeah why can't you incorporate that into UF generally so no I, I think and the MacGuffin is an absolutely classic for that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um, there's also the it's kind of an emerging sub subgenre which is the gas lamp fantasy which is is kind mm. of the natural successor of the penny dreadful comics mm -hmm. so you know the urban fantasy is very much on point with tropes etc but it's set usually sometime in the Victorian or even Regency or Edwardian eras. And there can be a little bit of crossover with steampunk, but the focus is mostly on the urban fantasy side of things. So mm. um, thinking of things like Gail Carragher's Parasol Protectorate, where you know vampires and werewolves and things are out, but you've still got the Victorian mores and morals and modes of dress and things. 
And those books are a lot of fun. Well, and of course, you know, Penny Dreadful, the series, which was relatively successful and, you know, is effective, you know, or, you know, probably what kicked it all off, the Alan Moore um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, comics, which were, you know, absolutely brilliant and then massacred as a film, but but the actual graphic novels were amazing. (laughs) Um, what a Sean Connery! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but who was a perfect choice for Alan Quatermain? It's just you know the whole kind of who was who was the American that they that they um, they jammed in there? Who was it? I can't I, even remember. I have no idea. Yeah, he was such a non-entity. Yeah, it wasn't Huckleberry Finn. It was Tom Sawyer, I think, wasn't it? Wasn't it something like that? It was, it was he something even, like that. He wasn't even like magical. <laughs> he was just like let's throw an American in and he can have guns. You know, like yeah. What was my secret American power? Guns. They they always seem to wedge Dorian Gray into these things as well. Of course, of course. It has to be Dorian. I mean, I suppose Dorian Gray would kind of really lend itself to a sort of vampiric type entity, immortal creature with a with a sort of tragic backstory, I guess. Yeah, Shane, but Shane it's Silvers of, it's, gets him in as well, doesn't he? Shane yeah. Silvers puts Dorian Gray into his Templeverse series, doesn't he? So yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I'm, I'm just sort of amazed whenever they put Dorian Gray as some suave person going into battle because I'm like Dorian Gray from the books would have been like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> which, which end of the sword do I use? Yeah, <laughs> he would not be going no. into battle and getting shot. He would just be—he would be like, "Oh, it hurts." You're absolutely fine, though. Oh gosh, that's how I get f- Harry. Get Harry. I need Harry. <laughs> that's how I felt about the the main character of um, you know, Sir Walter Scott's uh, Rob Roy book. I mean, it's not really written from Rob Roy's perspective. It's written from this guy called Francis's perspective. And he is such a retiring, sort of quiet country type gentleman. And every time it, it said something like, and Francis drew his sword, I was like, somebody should take that off him. He's going to hurt himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Oh. I, su- I suppose you can also throw into that as well, uh, thinking about kind of sidekicks or, or people writing, of course. The, the one that springs to mind is Watson. And of course, there's there's all there's been a um, a tradition. In fact, game Neil Gaiman himself did one, didn't he? Of kind of rewriting Holmes, um, but within a fantastical yeah. setting. Um, so he had one where Holmes was a vampire, didn't he? Uh, Neil Gaiman within one of his short story collections, I think. And there's been a few um, sort of attempts to, to to incorporate a Holmes who is um, cognizant. Of the of of a of a hidden paranormal world and incorporating then his his particular brand of mystery solving uh, into things, I think, hasn't there? Yeah, there's yeah. the James Lovegrove books, the Cthulhu case books. Um, yeah. Madeline yeah. and I almost buddy read the first one, which um, I quite enjoyed. I think you were annoyed at how they treated Watson in that one, weren't you? <laughs> Just a tiny bit, uh, but yes. Um, so you know, these are some of the ways uh, that you can do it. I mean. The other way is to sort of to bring sort of historical stuff into urban fantasy is um, you know uh, is to incorporate historical set pieces mm. in your urban fantasy using things like flashbacks, diary entries, um, which is obviously something that you do, Chris. I do. Uh, in, in- Perfect Kappa, um, uh, but it's also something that Jules does uh, with does. Parker and Blackthorn. <laughs> I just read the first one and really enjoyed it. But yeah, the whole kind of the, the flashbacks um, 
what can I say without ruining people? But some particular flashback dream sequences, uh, for example, uh, in, in the first one, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I thought it was great fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do get really bad with sort of like excerpts from, you know, people's diaries and things just to explain some of the backstory of all the cryptids that they, they find, etc. Mm. Most people seem to enjoy it. I have had one person say, I wish you'd stop putting those in the books. They're really boring. I just scan read them. Well, that's, fine. Okay. that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you, what you've done there is, is found your own solution to the problem you've created. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Do carry on. <laughs> and it's like you obviously oh, like the rest of the story enough to read the the other twelve books, so you know, <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to complain. <laughs> um, other historical settings that I think really do work for urban fantasy we mentioned edwardian regency but the world war one and world war two and you know the between war eras as well where mm. everyone's mm. kind of got this sense of relief from world war one being over but they're kind of eyeing what hitler's up to as well and I, it's almost become a bit of a cliche to sort of you know make the nazis the bad guys but in urban fantasy terms in this historical setting they do make really good bad guys especially if you're a bit nuanced with it well, absolutely. And of course, this, you know, and again, I suppose you, you could say this has been going on for a very, very long time. We've talked about Indiana Jones, you know, yeah. you can look at stuff like like Hellboy, you know, in the graphic novel world and stuff as well. Um, Even but, Marvel. Know, Marvel, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, Red Skull and everything. So, you know, God, when was that? It was just after. I think Captain America was mm -hmm. the 19, was the end of the 1940s, the whole stuff with Red Skull. Like it was just after, and they're already incorporating what you know you can really call urban fantasy because that's what comics are for a yeah, large yeah. part of it. Certainly, when you start incorporating, you know, serums that are effectively magic, uh, yeah. like like like, uh, like Captain America. Um, but of course, you know, this is really what the Nazis were up to to a degree. They really believed in a lot of this stuff. You know, the Cthulhu Society, uh, not the Cthulhu Society, um, the Thule Society. Sorry. Uh, I was talking about other thing, but the Thule Society, you know, really existed. The Ananebe really existed. You know, Himmler put huge amounts of money into all this sort of stuff. You know, he really did have a a room where he was expecting to have the Holy Grail on display and thought it would have, you know, magical uses. The, the, you know, this was a genuine thing the Nazis were really into. So, so it doesn't take a lot of effort to then spin that off and create motivation and you know if you're anything like me who grew up on indiana jones films and and all of that that you can never go wrong with seeing a nazi getting punched in the face as well so no. you know <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that's it's probably i mean i enjoyed all the Inter indiana jones films but indiana jones and the last crusade for some reason that just sort of hit i think i was what maybe 14 15 when it came out and it just mm. sort of hit at that perfect time where it just became a favourite film. Fabulous, fabulous film. Uh, going back to the thing you were saying about between the war era as well, I think the other thing that makes that an, a a, um, a, uh, a good setting or a rich setting, a febrile setting is the word I'm looking for, um, is that it's obviously a moment of huge societal change, you know, where the class structures yeah. across Europe were being challenged and things were being upended and if you like it was a period where a huge period of stability of ruling classes suddenly you know got overturned or started being overturned or 
mm. arguably simply became entrenched in a more clever and hidden way. Um, but which obviously works when you start looking at things like societal structures for, for beings like vampires and werewolves and potentially a, a plucky young thing arriving and, and, and upending the status quo. It becomes a very rich um, arena to set that in, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Cold War era as well, certainly early oh, yeah. Cold War. And I, I have got something vaguely sort of planned for early Cold War. Ooh. Well, mm. I thought that. <laughs> nice. I'm never going to be able to not write in this universe, basically, because every time I get to the end of a series, something else occurs to me, so I'm kind of stuck here. <laughs> so let's look at some of the pros and cons of incorporating strong historical elements into an urban fantasy. Um, we'll start with the pros, um, and I'm just going to begin with the obvious one which is that um one of the pros is that you know if you happen to love history and you want to add a little bit more depth history's got you <laughs> yeah it's a great way for, it's a great way to do that i mean to be honest um adding history can kind of give you the outline of a story as well as we were saying you know the mysterious mm. object mm -hmm. type quest yeah absolutely uh, absolutely and I think it fits it fits as well with the whole thing of urban fantasy in the sense that, you know, what urban fantasy is, is, is it's, in many ways, it's, it's the equivalent of the Marvel what if, isn't it? It's it's what if it was our world, but actually you also had X and Y, vampires and werewolves, you know, giant snail dragons, whatever it is. What if? Uh, and, you know, history is, is, again, you can, here's all of this, here is all of this fascinating and mad and crazy things that have happened well what if what if the motivation or the underlying factor of that actually was you know magic or this or that you know uh, so yeah it gives you a a immediate structure to hang your hat, hat on because it's already happened you know what happened yeah exactly yeah. so world building and setting obviously is another one um Yep. It's something we were talking about with Heather, actually, when she joined us a, you know, a few weeks ago now, um, about how certainly UK urban fantasy does seem to lean on the setting more, perhaps because we're all a bit more wedded to our history. Um, and we, I suppose... Because we've got Because some. we've got so much of it, we cannot let it go. It's kind of a sunk cost fallacy thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I think it's definitely truth in that. Definitely. Uh, you know, you're right. We grow up, and I, I know that was a bit of a low blow on my part, saying because we've got some, of course, everyone has their history, and you know, just maybe they've stolen it from us and other people. But uh, you know, the the, the 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 we are in a place that is surrounded with history everywhere we look. You know, we grow up with it, and it becomes perhaps more natural to incorporate that into what we write. Therefore. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing is that obviously a lot of urban fantasy does also like to draw on mythology and folklore. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you want to be accurate with that, you at some point you are going to have to add some elements of history. Otherwise, things fall apart pretty quickly. True. Very true. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, when we were talking about, obviously you know, standing out a bit in a crowded marketplace, finding your very niche market for your sub-subgenre, which incorporates history and folklore, etc. Um, it can obviously make what you've written stand out a bit more as well. 
um, if you've got the people yeah. who just like no we just want werewolves and vampires and love triangles then maybe not but <laughs> if you if, you, if but, you want more history then yes but yeah, yeah. Even, even down to the kind of like okay you know how many series have tapped into you know Greek mythology yeah. how many have tapped into Norse mythology and again not not to quit criticize them they are fabulous you know I, I've loved some of those series you know uh, the Arthurian myths have been you know pretty pretty well delved uh, you know uh, Steve McHugh does very very well on that you know so it's all about also like trying to add something fresh in there's a whole world of history and mythology and stuff out there go and dig into it you know yeah yeah actually that point that point the one that fled earlier has come back to me i know what it is um um, yeah basically i don't know if you've ever read the faith hunter series uh uh, basically about a skinwalker who um the jane yellow rock series but um you know what i think i read one a very long time i mean um, unlike them because she kind she also kind of goes around that I'm going to use magic but I'm also going to have science on the side saying well magic is kind of science we don't really well, you know or vice versa it's science we don't really understand yet mm. etc and I liked the way she lent into that what bugged me about that and what bugged me about the Patricia Briggs series where she's a coyote shifter I believe is um is the fact that both of them kind of had their main characters these supernatural creatures who were not you know they weren't of european extraction particularly and they had them automatically leaning on very very western european centric type christianity as in well of course i believe in god of course i go to church uh but i happen to have sex with someone last night and obviously i didn't marry them first so and it was this very conservative traditional view and it really bugged me not that it was in there but it that it was in there like a default and i do you know what yeah. I, I read recently that i really liked for that um and that was um one of kn barnett's series i don't know if you she's got an interlaying world um one of them is a um is um is it it's a wear cat it's like a big wear cat oh god my memory is just terrible at the moment for various reasons but there's one where um it's about a nagini uh and uh, so a female nagi but it's all based and you know she she shows up as a character within this world and then she did a spin-off on them but it's really really integrated into indian mythology and legend and Indian culture and how the society works and she's very definitely you know Indian albeit that she's come to America you know fleeing stuff that has happened and has grown up here or has you know she started off in India the story goes back to India at some point and it's based in Indian mythology and I loved that because it's you know they have this whole sort of thing it'd be so easy to just go okay here's a Naga but actually they're uh, you know a white dude with you know blue eyes and blonde hair and i i love yeah. seeing that that it wasn't done like that and it was very respectful and very well done and really incorporated you know into hindu mythology and stuff i thought it was brilliant yeah. um so yeah it's like shout out to km barnett on that one yeah that i mean that sounds brilliant um it's one of the things i really appreciated about imperfect Cather is the fact that I've always found Christian mysticism really, really interesting. 
and I'm not, as I said, I'm not against people putting, you know, some sort of religious component in their fantasy, but it is just the kind of, I hate it as presented as the, the default. So when you have Paul and he, he clearly does still believe, he believes enough that he's now kind of like, well, obviously, you know, if I ever do die properly, I'm probably going to hell kind of thing because I'm not perfect. And it's just really interesting well, yeah. to do something a bit different. I think it, I think it's that whole interesting thing, you know. I mean, I grew up. My parents were um, were were from Irish Catholic backgrounds, and they are both atheists. And they always said, "You can stop believing in God, but you never stop being a Catholic." And that was something yeah. I kind of <laughs> wanted to bring in with Paul. It's the thing he doesn't really believe in God anymore. He doesn't believe in the good God, although he constantly talks about them. And yet, you know, he does believe, for whatever reason. He believes that should he die that final death, his soul will dissolve because that's what happens for a perfect if they break the consolamentum. And somehow he believes in that sin. He believes he sinned and he believes he has marked himself and broken his consolamentum. So even though he doesn't really believe in God anymore, he still is, even 800 years later, tied in by those beliefs that formed him in those early days and still trying to live up to those aims of perfection even if you know even if he doesn't really believe or or ha or, or consciously has told himself he doesn't believe in those things anymore yeah yeah they're ingrained exactly so yeah which does lead us back to one of the other pros of kind of of adding sort of historical elements to an urban fantasy is that if you do have an immortal character, you know, having that history can be gold for their yes. for their whole character arc because you, you, you've got this character who is hearkening back to a time where understanding of religion and reality was very, very different. And so he now has the whole kind of the balance between modern understanding, modern culture, and the parts of himself which were, you know, which are still born so many centuries prior, the parts of himself which are sort of ingrained in his character, even if his attitude has changed, even if things have changed. Yeah. Right, exactly. You know, those those are these, these things that we can't escape that have become, you know, this whole thing that a child after seven, their their character is formed, and there are these things that we carry with us. And you know, if you are, of course, as well, if you are an immortal, it's quite hard to get yourself a psychotherapist, yeah. <laughs> even though yeah. you probably really need one. So, yeah. so you know, you're you're probably dealing with all of this weird issues and trauma and all on your own. Uh, which probably, you know, and and that was what I kind of went for, you know, I, and what's that going to probably manifest as? Well, it's probably going to manifest as, you know, a, a, a certain sense of humour and using that as a defensive shield. Um, so, if you like, I think a lot of the time when we have immortals in books, they're either very po-faced or they're snarky and you wouldn't believe that they, you know, that they'd ever lived in any era but the present one. But humour as a defence mechanism... I think has probably existed for a very, very long time. Yeah. You know, yeah, one only yeah. has to look at the the gallows humour of, of uh, you know, ER responders and the like to realise this is how we have processed, you know, 
the terrible extremes that we are forced into as a species by mainly our own choices and actions but also you know external factors like being born into poverty and you know living in times or places where you don't have access to certain forms of you know life-saving equipment uh, watching mm -hmm. you know what what must it have been like to watch you know a third of the european population get wiped out by the black plague what must that have been like yeah. you know that must have been massively traumatic you know horrendous you know uh, and so you know i think there's something very interesting to look at and to sort of use that journey not only as a backdrop and not only as interesting moments to pop into but also in terms of the idea of you know we all carry our shit and i'm sorry you know none of us really yeah we all kind of come to peace with it perhaps or we we, we find more peace with it or hopefully we find more peace with it as we get older but what if you never age what if there is no end in sight because perhaps that's a reason why we come to peace with some of it and all you're really doing is just adding more and more trauma on, just layering it on top of the old trauma you're already carrying about and never really yeah. sorting any of it out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think we're drifting a little bit into just talking about my series or no, my no, characters. I think but... it's, it's, it, it's, it's only really... better than, oh, yes, I'm a 900-year-old immortal and my main qualities are I'm sexy and brooding. <laughs> Yeah. And I really like 18-year-old girls and there's nothing creepy about that whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the what we do in the shadows thing with the, with the, 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 which the one who, who's played by Taika Waititi who's just, he's, he's this vampire and he's just really in love with this old woman. And it was, yeah, they, had, they made it weird a couple of times, but honestly, it was just really cute. Where he's yeah. like, where he's like well, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What is someone uh, um, sort of that age doing with someone like me? But, uh, you know, uh, we're happy together. And yeah, I may be older. And <laughs> I thought it was so cute. It was actually really nice. And that he just happened to love this woman. And it didn't matter that she'd become old. Um, he was just, you know, he was totally in love with her. And he felt that it was totally age appropriate. In fact, he felt weird about it because he was like, I'm so much older than you. Well, and you're and so quite. young in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so. Yeah. Um, but another thing which, again, sort of related, uh, another pro is that if you do have these historical elements which are hinted towards and things like that, it also kind of sort of hooks your reader in in a different way and does give you sort of sort of an excuse really um to kind of go off into a spin-off you know there's some potential there um but it, it there's a lot of potential to sort of build up theories and ideas to include foreshadowing mm -hmm. um, and just to also include a whole other dimension to your piece and i think i mentioned this it's, it's not quite the same but one thing I particularly liked about uh, the first book that Jules, um, I, I was about to say wrote, but I know it wasn't the first one he wrote, the first book that Jules published, um, I Belong to the Earth, was the inclusion of some folklore. Um, and you included the song Long Lankin in it. And it has nothing to do with the plot, really. It's 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 mostly just this kind of bringing the sense of mood. But for me, it it was one of the big points where I suddenly really fell in love with the book. Nice. And historical fiction, sorry, historical elements in urban fantasy fiction can 
bring that level of dimension, bring that level of interest in a similar way, even if they aren't major pivot points in the plot, they are added flavouring. They are the spice, mm. um, if used correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, let's look at a few cons. Um, we're overrunning very slightly, but... Um... Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, That'd be me jabbering. Sorry about uh, that. I think it's, it's it's us as well, quite frankly. <laughs> okay, so um, just as some readers will love the sort of smart aspect of urban fantasy, which adds history or science or what have you, um, others will be bored by it. So you're not catering for everyone. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, there are going to be people who, you know, who get switched off by it. I've had a couple of reviews who say, you know, it's, it's too confusing, it's too complicated. Um, and no matter how much you try to, to, to streamline it, to make it clear, you know, to include everything, some people will just find that too much, uh, which is fine. You know, you can't, you can't please every reader. Yeah. Uh, but agreed. I think no. that can definitely be a con. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, another thing is, if you add a lot of historical detail and get something wrong, expect to hear about it at length from readers who are in the know. And this is something I found from writing historical fiction. There was one thing, and it wasn't that I got it wrong, it's just that opinions varied, and it served my plot better to follow one opinion, even though you know there wasn't evidence for exactly what happened, um, than to follow the one that this particular reader sort of endorsed. Um, and this did not please that reader at all, <laughs> shall we say. But I think there's something of that. If you're going to use any sort of modern plot or, or modern location, people will pick it up. I, I misspelled the name of somewhere in Toulouse by accident. Just mentioned once, and someone emailed me and said, uh, you, you've spelled this wrong. I looked it up on Google. And they, they weren't from Toulouse, but they because they loved the story, they'd gone and looked at it. And they were letting me know, and it was brilliant. I was really appreciative. I said, thank you very much. That's wonderful. But it goes to show that if you are going to incorporate anything of the real world, um, you know, somebody, you know, if you get it wrong, somebody will pick it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is yeah. terrifying. But there we are, you know. We have to live with that. Absolutely. Um. The other thing is that, you know, following on from that, is that if you are bored by it, your readers are going to be bored by your depictions of it. So if you are going to include historical elements, you better actually be interested in those historical elements, which is, again, a reason why I think we don't always see a lot of history in these kind of more paranormal sort of romances, because the writers don't actually really care about, you know, Viking Britain or, or the or whatever the Renaissance or whatever era their vampire has come from. Um, they just want the aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. Um, because they understand that they are not interested in it. So if they try to depict it, their readers won't wouldn't be interested in it either because they'd be bored writing yeah. it. True. Very good point. Um and, and, I mean, why would you write something that you're not interested in? Yeah, it's in? too much work for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> also, there's a lot more research involved. So if you do want to incorporate historical elements, you kind of, we've always, me and Madeline, Madeline and I, have always kind of said, you know, you, you re particularly if you're dealing with another culture, you kind of have a duty to do your due diligence and actually depict mm -hmm. things as sensitively and accurately as you can, which means there's a lot more research involved. Um, so, yes. 
good adding again you know with that totally but again you know any form of that i had a one of my one of my very loyal readers who, who's fabulous and, and reads my art and he said to me look you know he he's a very devout jew in fact he, he prints out my books and reads them on uh, on the sabbath because um, he, he won't use a, an electrical device on, on the sabbath which you know and he said to me chris look you, you've got um you've got isaac using you know using the name yahweh and he said dude we, we, we don't say his name you know we, we we use this and that instead and so you know and and i'd missed that even within my research i'd missed that and i was like you know yeah. what mm-hmm. you're quite right the character of isaac wouldn't do that because he is still he definitely definitely does still believe in in judaism and the jewish faith uh, and so yeah you're right so yeah it comes back to that one we said again about people picking things up and again that was brilliant but but there's so much more research to do and the jeopardy is much higher that you're going to get something wrong yeah yeah, yeah. definitely uh, which I guess brings us on to is adding historical fan- historical fantasy adding historical elements to urban fantasy something you can get wrong well <laughs> yes <laughs> yes I have thank you in yeah. theory you can get anything <laughs> wrong but in this instance if point. you don't have a passionate interest in history or at least the bit you want to incorporate then generally we'd we'd advise you to kind of just skip it and don't put it in there because again as madeline was saying if you're bored your readers are going to be bored too well and that's the point it would be like me trying to shoehorn in romance it's not what i want to write and maybe it will be one day but it's not what i want to write at the moment so were i to try and put it in it would bore me and it would it would play false you know it would it wouldn't ring true with the audience and it would not work you have to write the thing that interests you and find a way to make that accessible to your audience but make sure it remains interesting to you or it will ring false yeah similarly if you find yourself in the uh, other boat where actually the history is overtaking the urban fantasy element then you kind of got to ask yourself maybe you should be writing historical fiction (laughs) uh, or even historical fantasy instead (laughs) it might be a clue that that what you're really interested in is the historical side of things Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or historical urban fantasy, in the sense of make it the his- the urban trope, but hit it, put it all in a historical yeah. setting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, essentially, for urban fantasy to be successful, you still need to serve that target audience, which means using the, those urban fantasy beats and tropes and yes. the humour, as Chris has just said. Um, uh, and you can add whatever else you want as garnish because it is a very versatile genre. But just don't oversalt the dish. Yeah, um, I'm going to blame Jules for those cooking. I know. Vegetables. I keep doing it. I don't <laughs> know why. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. J- Jules's notes just saying don't oversalt the dish, and I'm like, really, Jules? But then I did bring in the submarine um, <laughs> and the humors, this, so this, I feel like we've balanced feel, the humors there like a bit. She, Jules said don't oversalt the dish, but I did bring in the submarine. I feel like we're in an existentialist type joke now. <laughs> yeah. How many existentialists does it take to change a light bulb? Don't oversalt the dish and avoid the submarine when you've got the ill humors. You know, yes, yeah. <laughs> Very difficult. Um, and now all in French. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how have we used historical components in our own work? Obviously, uh, Chris, y- you've used a fair amount of them. <laughs> I have. And, you know, and I think as well, one of the interesting things, you know, we talked about the First and Second World War, we talked about, um, you know, gaslight uh, fantasy. 
you know, you could do up to anything. Um, in book four, it's um, it's set in the seventies. You know, the, the the historical fantasy part yeah. of it is set mm-hmm. in the seventies. Um, when based around a true story, where Marshal Patan's coffin was stolen by a group of far right commandos who wanted him to be given full military burial and honours. Uh, for those who don't know, Marshal Patan. Uh, was the leader of um, Vichy France who surrendered to the Nazis and then um, proceeded to put lots of Jews and homosexuals onto the trains out to the camps. Yeah. Um, and this genuinely happened. They genuinely stole his coffin. It's a fascinating and bizarre story and I have no idea how it hasn't been turned into some sort of you know crime caper romp uh, on Netflix. Uh, and you know so you can you can find fascinating stories anywhere that work and the whole of history is open to you um, Mm -hmm. and and all of that can be incorporated as long as as you said you find it interesting and can therefore make it interesting for your reader yeah yeah completely agree Um, I mean obviously Jules you've incorporated a fair amount of historical stuff I have well partly uh, without spoilers because there's there's things that even Madeline doesn't know. Madeline is my alpha reader. Um, but I think it's... I am the alpha. Sorry. <laughs> I'm about to be an alpha. Okay. Uh, that would be a very different reverse harem. The other... <laughs> I am the alpha. Like... Give me all of your books. Yes. <laughs> so, no, I'm not interested in sex. I just want literary fiction. No, um... Um, because I, I had a very clear end point for all around Park and Blackthorn and I knew exactly where how many books it was going to be before the end and that hasn't changed mm-hmm. thankfully because um, you know how my series like to grow but uh, this is yeah. a case of I knew that some really important events took place around sort of maybe 60 or so years before the first book um, so I needed to gradually seed in some of this and you know the, the whole Harker Blackthorn the company started back in sort of the mid 1800s so I kind of needed to seed a lot of that in as I went along so um, that was part of the reason for the historical stuff the rest of it is that I'm having fun when I'm writing and I tend to get really really enthusiastic about stuff I mean I, I've mashed so much in folklore and science and, and physics and chemistry even and biology and zoology and i've just thrown it all in there because i love all of it and it and kind of chucked it at my readers and gone deal with it because that's what i like (laughs) (laughs) and that's why i'm the alpha um (laughs) (laughs) but it works and you found it yeah (laughs) not only is it mainly you found each other which again starts sounding like we're the alpha i found you alpha um but but, you know, you, you found your you found your audience and you found your niche and you found the people who respond to that because there is that out there. And if you try to do stuff that doesn't ring true to you, you won't find that. You've got to write the things that work for you. That doesn't mean you can't write to market, but it has to be a market that interests you because otherwise, I think, personally speaking, which is perhaps massively um, presumptuous of me as a relatively new author... I think it will it will it will not stand comparatively to those that are written by people who have a passion for that particular sub niche. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would. I would tend uh, to agree. Madeline is Madeline is producing urban fantasy. She's just not publishing it at the moment. It's, I'm hoarding I, it. said, I, I said that very darkly. I've just, Alpha. I've just finished her third urban fantasy book, and I think I finished with so how's book four coming along? And she very noticeably did not answer that question <laughs> when I messaged her. She kind of skipped over it. So, um... <laughs> I, I, is, is this because you're stacking I, I for actually... quick release, Madeline? Or yeah, I'm stacking for release. Um... But it's quite funny because I told one of my other friends, I said, I've just sent Jules um, book three. I think I'll have until Tuesday before, um, next Tuesday before she asks me about book four. And uh, my friend was like, do you think it'll take her that long to read it? And I said, no, 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 it won't take her that long to read it. She is finishing something else, but um, her pe- she will be sati- satiated until Tuesday. And what do you know exactly on Tuesday? <laughs> Jules sent me the message, was like, so how's book four coming along? And I was like, I knew it! You know me too well. This is new. This is new. Um, but yeah, and, and actually, weirdly enough, the whole bringing the historical element side of it sort of brings up one of the themes which happens in book three, which obviously Jules has just finished reading, um, where I do have an immortal character who has been around for a fair amount of time. Um, and one of his friends, uh, the main character, she she's very curious about history. She keeps asking him questions. And Galahad will occasionally just let slip these little tidbits and then will not say any more. And it's driving Kestrel, the main character, absolutely crazy. And she, what she's done is by book three, she has taken to trying to get him to slip up. So she'll just mention little historical things. So there's this isn't a spoiler. There's just a moment where, uh, you know, for example, they're in Winchester and she says, all right, come on, let's go down. And you can tell me about that time. Uh, you can tell me about the baking lessons King Alfred gave you. Ah. And Galahad just goes, just goes, that man had very little knowledge on that subject. And Kestrel turns around and goes, wait, did you know him? <laughs> wait, Galahad. No, come back. <laughs> Did you know him? What was he like? Did he really burn the cakes? Galahad, and he will he will not tell her anymore. <laughs> what a monster! A monster. I know. <laughs> um, but it, it has been it has been a lot of fun, and one of the big things was obviously it's based in the Arthurian legends. Um, so it's sort of modern world, but the Arthurian legends. And part of that was trying to balance out the myth with the actual history, which involved a considerable amount of research and me, <laughs> my partner, opening the door and just finding me like with the whiteboard, with the red string, you know, looking <laughs> at the conspiracy theorists, just they're like, well, if he was born there and you've got this there, then we can move that there. And then that battle took place there, which means it's about this period. And he just gently closes the door again. And then I come running out and I was like, look, look, I put together a family, a royal family tree of the Arthurian myths. <laughs> my parents, my fiance say looking at me like um you do realize that these didn't happen it doesn't matter whether they happened or not and then there's the absolute landmine 
minefield conversation with me where she's like, well, there's this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, so are you going from the early Welsh myths or Geoffrey of Monmouth or the brute tradition? And Madeline's like, I've already narrowed it down. Please stop complicating it. <laughs> or, of course, you could start bringing in the French elements as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? I so. know. This is why, and this is, again, I think probably one of the big things that's, and that I'm sort of relatively safe because it is myth and I'm using a little bit of history is that there are going to be people who are reading it and going, hold on a second, why have you done that? And the reason I've done that is that I've basically tried to appease all of the myths at the same time. And the idea is that, yes, some of the myths aren't entirely accurate because they're based off of sort of third, fourth-hand information. The characters are mostly there, but you've got little bits and bobs. So, um, for example, it's not a massive spoiler to say that in my version, Morgana isn't actually blood-related to um, Arthur, because in the first version we ever see Morgan, there is no mention of a blood relation to Arthur. But I wanted to bring that sibling element, so instead she was kind of more like a, a ward, an adopted sort of sister. Mm. Uh, and so people are going to be like, why have you chosen to do that? And it's like, because there's too many contradicting opinions and i cannot appease them all but then you know that that i think as long as you've got something coherent and you can yeah. justify it then that's fine you know for example you know in my series the when the we're, we're with the uh the part at the start in the albigensian crusade and uh, the uh the mad priest in mine is called arnold almerick now, that's not the most common spelling of his name. Mostly it's spelled Amalric, or it's spelled Amori. But that's because mm -hmm. they didn't have proper spellings of last names back then. You know what I mean? Yeah. People put whatever they wanted. And Almeric yeah. is the Spanish version of it, and I preferred it. You know, we're dealing with things, you know, 800 years ago with multiple sources and different spellings and different versions. As long as you can justify it, I don't mm -hmm. see any problem in it. Um, yeah, what you've got to be able to do is justify it. Yeah, yes, absolutely, and that is, I think, one of the big crucial things when you are bringing historical elements into any kind of fiction. If you do decide to take kind of you know liberties, um, which you might very well have to do with certain historical things because our records are limited, or they might be skewered a little bit, or there might be contradicting evidence. Um, you need to basically be able to say, this is why I have done this. Even if you don't actually put that in the book itself, um, the confidence with which you approach something will actually shine through. And it's very clear when something ha is a deliberate choice and when something has just been done out of a complete lack of consideration or mm. research. Yes, absolutely agree on that 100%. Okay. Well, we have come to the end of our episode. Um, and I mean, <laughs> sorry for overrunning a little bit, guys, and, and for holding <laughs> you, uh, Chris, but I mean, like, a pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, it's been a and delight. I, I hope that you have as well. <laughs> I have. I, I, no, honestly, genuinely, it's been, it's been a genuine pleasure and a delight. And, you know, thank you beyond all words to have invited me in. The conversation has been fascinating, as I knew it would be, and I am immensely grateful. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Good. Does this mean we might be able to convince you to come back? Anytime, anytime <laughs> at all, with great pleasure. 
Before we do go, uh, would you mind telling our listeners where they can sort of find you online again? Not You don't have to give your uh, address and yes. <laughs> things yeah. like that. This is where you can find me at home. No. <laughs> well, you know what? If you were trying to find me, I do actually mention several locations where I do, okay, when, when I'm, I'm able to. At the moment, I'm not really able to get out of the house that much, but when I'm out, where you can find me when I'm having a drink. So if you read the books, you can find where you might come across me to have a beer um, in, in Toulouse when I'm out. Um, but outside of that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can find me online at my website, cnrowan.com. Uh, there you can also get the free uh, novella, An Imperfect Trap, um, by signing up to my mailing list. Uh, you can find me um, on Facebook at cnrowan, facebook.com forward slash cnrowan. That's where I'm most active. I am on Instagram at cnrowanauthor. Uh, I don't do that much on it. I should do more. But I am very, very active on Facebook. And you can also find me there on my uh, readers group, uh, which is CN Rowan's Imperfect Imps, which is extremely active. Actually, I'm very lucky. It's a great group. Uh, I think we're coming up on about 1,500 people in there now. And it's very, very active, really, really friendly, um, very, very supportive. uh, And I highly recommend uh, you join in. And I'm in and out of there every day. Um, If you want to get hold of my stuff, uh, my my ebooks are um, are Kindle Unlimited, um, so are Amazon exclusive. Uh, the paperback is everywhere, um, and my audio books are also everywhere. And you can get those directly from my Shopify, uh, which is cnrowan.myshopify.com. And I'll tell you what, let's um, let's do a discount code just for Dissecting Dragons. Um, use the code uh, Dragons. Uh, we'll put an S on it. Dragons with an S, uh, and we'll we'll give you twenty percent off on all my audio books, and they're already like a quarter of the price on there that you'd pay for on uh, Audible. I think the $6.99, he says, like he knows what he's talking about, about the prices he set. Um, but that will, <laughs> I, I will set the code up. Dragons, Dragons will give you an extra 20% off on all of the audiobooks, which are on uh, on my Shopify, cnrowan.myshopify.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's great pleasure. Well, now there's no excuse, guys. Definitely go and grab those. <laughs> Oh, and I'll tell you what, one very last um, one, one very last one. If you want to see hear what my, my audiobooks sound like, but without actually putting any money out to start with, you can find both my audiobook, An Imperfect Trap, and uh, the short story, The Gabby is Justice, uh, which is a historical fantasy set in the 16th century in Toulouse. You can listen to both of those uh, for free on my YouTube. Uh, just search for CN Rowan, and you'll find me on YouTube. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much. A pleasure. Well, um, obviously, it is our time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation. And of course, it will come as no shock to anyone that we are going to be recommending the Imperfect Cathar series. Um, in fact, book three, uh, Imperfect Fate, will have actually dropped the day, will have dropped yesterday. It will, yes. Yes. Um, I say will have dropped yesterday. It just sounds very odd. By the time this episode comes out. <laughs> it will be dropping yesterday Um, and just as an extra sort of little incentive to go and check these out if you would rather read or you want to have a copy of the book to read along with listening to the audio book book one will be on sale for 99 is it 99p or 99 cents well both both 99 cents 99p so since yesterday so now the 7th of July 6th of July up until the 12th of July on Amazon it's on for 99p slash cents slash the rest of it if I can work out how to do it being a bear of a <laughs> brain 
So be sure to take advantage of that to grab the first book. And once again, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Well, thank you um, for having me. And uh, thanks to all our listeners. We'll catch you next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.